for joining us this evening for our live stream with Dr. Robert Hayes. Um, before I introduce him, first of all, just a very quick reminder um, that if you haven't already, please sign our petition on change.org slash nuclear for Australia or scan the QR code. It is now in the top right um, hand corner of your screen. So I'll now introduce to you Dr. Robert Hayes. Hopefully this will work um, because we were just having some technical difficulties. Um, Mr. Hayes, is that is the audio working now? I hope so. Can you hear me? It is. I'll just boost your audio there. But thank you very much for joining us because I know it's quite early there in the United States um, where you are. But could I just ask you to quickly introduce yourself to everyone watching? Sure. Uh, so my name is Robert Hayes, as you stated. Uh, I started off my academic career with a dual major in math and physics. Then I went and did a master's in physics and then finished with my PhD in nuclear engineering. I then went into industry uh, working in nuclear waste management. I worked at uh, a geological repository for transuranic waste uh, there in Southeast New Mexico, licensed by the EPA, uh, which is the Environmental Protection Agency here in the United States. I did that for a number of years. I also worked at the former Nevada test site doing radiological emergency response for the federal teams. Um, while I was in industry, I became certified as a health physicist by the American Board of Health Physics. I also uh, became licensed as a professional engineer in nuclear. And during that time, I became a fellow of the American Physical Society. Uh, after that, I switched over to academia. Um, I put together here at North Carolina State University a minor in health physics with our nuclear engineering degree and a graduate certificate in health physics, uh, all of which, well, actually the, the graduate certificate can all be obtained online. Uh, it's part of our master's of nuclear engineering degree, which also is online and it's been ranked number one in the nation for uh, three or four years now in a row. And my research is in basically supporting all that health physics stuff. It's, uh, I, use, it, I do retrospective dosimetry with various things, whether it's gamma ray spectrometry, radiological air monitoring, or solid state techniques using electron paramagnetic resonance or thermo or optically stimulated luminescence. So some really fun research. Um, and I guess that's my little background uh, spiel there. Well, thank you for that. Um, and obviously you have the credentials to um, contribute to this nuclear debate in Australia. Um, just to also to let people know that you will run a quite a successful TikTok page where you answer people's questions about nuclear energy. And I've got a screenshot of that. Um, on the screen now, so please follow that if you use TikTok. Um, but it's just good to shout that out um, a bit, and you'll be doing the same thing that you do on TikTok um, with our audience here tonight. So thank you everyone for joining. Um, a reminder, please send in your questions, whatever site you're using. We can actually see them. Um, they're consolidated from all the platforms we're streaming on this evening. Um, and you can see once they appear, they will be here. So we'll just get through them. Um, at the same time, I'll also be asking my own questions um, to Dr. Hayes. So we might just get started with the questions if that's okay. And I'll get started Thank with you. some, which we had um, prior to this live stream, but reminder, please send them through. Um, first of all, from Lachlan was, how can we address the safety concerns um, around nuclear from the public created by historical incidents, say Chernobyl and whatever? That's a really great point. Um, so it depends on how you define safety. There, there are various definitions. So the technical definition that is uh, most applicable and perhaps even most intuitive 
is it's the product of safe of uh, consequences times probability. That's risk. Safety means that you've got acceptable risk. So when it comes to defining acceptable safety, typically we're going to say something like one in a million, uh, one event per uh, per million hours or something like that. Now, to be um, more precise, if you if you look at something that's considered an acceptable risk, that would be something that would be uh, commensurate with a day-to-day -day activity, walking down the street, um, uh, making yourself uh, uh, some toast for breakfast, um, or uh, maybe walking up a flight of stairs. Now, all of those actually have risk. Any one of those could kill you, right? Walking up a flight of stairs, you could fall down. Um, making some toast, you could have a kitchen fire. Um, walking down the street, you could get hit by a car. Uh, and so in, in all of those cases, there is risk. Uh, it's never zero, but it needs to be acceptable, very, very low. Now, there are things that we accept daily, like driving a car, which have very high risk. But uh, as a general rule, what we consider to be acceptable risks are ones that are extremely low, meaning that it's extremely unlikely that something bad will happen. And when it comes to things like Chernobyl, um, probably one of the easiest analogies to compare it to is, is airline flight. Uh, in the sense that the paradigm for airline flight is that it's the safest, but it, it's easily something that can scare somebody, particularly when you have an airline accident, it's world headlines. Even though uh, the, 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 um, the, the, the paradigm is that it's the safest way to travel. Um, that may or may not be a great analogy, but the, the reason why I bring that up is when you look at the amount of energy that you get for nuclear versus the actual harm that has occurred, say from Chernobyl or uh, Fukushima, that when you compare that to the same metric, that metric, how much harm per gigawatt hour, nuclear is one of the lowest. And that's including Chernobyl. So if you take in, if you factor in all the deaths from Chernobyl, uh, then you find that uh, it's still one of the safest. Um, I recently published uh, a, a review paper and in that review paper, um, one of the interesting metrics is uh, comparing uh, operational accident deaths from, uh, from wind to nuclear. Now, the selection was uh, a wind farm that was in Greece. Now, it was a very safe wind farm. So it was only about 5,000 deaths per 100,000 person hours. And that's just from people falling off of the wind turbines. And uh, it turned out it was a really safe that I mean, that metric is very safe, 5, 000, five per 100,000 person hours. That's like working in an office. And so this was a very safe wind farm. But a wind farm, it doesn't have very high energy density. Even a large wind farm doesn't produce a massive amount of energy. And so if you look at rather than the deaths per 100,000 person hours, you look at the deaths per 100,000 person hours per gigawatt hour. So it, it, you, if you were to say to have 10 times that number of wind farms, you could think you could expect 10 times the number of deaths. Or if you had 100 times that wind farm to start supplying all the energy needs, then you'd have 100 times the number of deaths at that safe rate. That's still for a very safe wind farm. And I compared that uh, for that year to what was uh, the deaths that, were, that had occurred in the United States for that same year, and that was during 2018. And the reason why that's interesting is that 20% of the electricity from the United States for about the past 50 years has been from nuclear. About 20% of all of our electricity in the United States has been from nuclear for almost 50 years. And for that year, to have the same death rate per gigawatt hour from all nuclear energy in the United States, it would have required about 2,500 people die from accidents. And it was zero. 
and so that kind of scales it, right? The, the, the number of accidental deaths are limited to, to very few incidents, but the amount of energy that we've been getting is just fantastic. It's enormous. Uh, and yet when anyone dies, then that's like, that is often considered to be evidence that we need to not use nuclear. But when somebody dies from something else, it's like, well, that's just, a, that's just normal. You expect people to, to uh, you know, rarely have something like that occur, but that's not tolerated for nuclear. Nuclear has a completely different standard for safety in many people's eyes. In other words, they think uh, it, it, it's, it's common for people to say, uh, I would support nuclear if it was safe, where the definition of safe is zero risk. And then it, if, you, if you use that definition, then you can say, well, we can't have nuclear because you can never make something have zero risk. It's not possible for anything to have zero risk. And so that's what, that, if that's the standard for nuclear, then by definition, you can, you can rationalize banning nuclear because you can't have zero risk. Well, thanks for um, answering that. And hopefully, Lachlan, that was enough of an answer for you. It's certainly very thorough. Um, so thanks for that, Robin. Just a reminder to please send in your questions if you're watching. Um, we will get to all of them. Um, and thank you for tuning in and watching. I just had a um, question in regards to that. What advance in terms of safety, what advancements are being made in terms of nuclear safety recently with new designs and small modular reactors? So some of the most exciting things are the passive safety features. If you look at like Three Mile Island uh, or Fukushima or, or, or Chernobyl, uh, the event of a nuclear meltdown ca is caused by the fact that when you shut a nuclear reactor down, you still, right at that instant when you turned it off, you still have about 1% power being generated just from radioactive decay. Now that will drastic, that will go down exponentially. So quite quickly, the the power being generated is very low. But the the the, the reason why a meltdown had, is able to occur under those circumstances is because uh, the laws of physics say that when you're generating heat, the temperature of that heat generation source is going to increase until the heat extraction rate is equal to the heat generation rate. And in a nuclear reactor, the heat is supposed to be uh, pulled away with the coolant, with the water. If I shut the water off, like what happened with Fukushima or Chernobyl or Three Mile Island, if I shut that water off, I'm not removing the heat from the reactor core. So even at 1%, and even though that's exponentially decaying over time, if I'm not removing the heat, then the temperature will rise until, again, the heat extraction rate is equal to the heat generation rate. And for the traditional nuclear fuel, uranium dioxide, for the traditional nuclear reactor cores, that temperature is above melting point. And so uh, it, a lot of these new uh, next generation uh, nuclear reactor designs are passive safety in the sense that if I shut the coolant off, uh, the, the amount of heat that's less, that, that can be generated there is not enough to cause a phase change in the fuel. And that's what the issue is. A phase change in the fuel is a meltdown. You melt the solid fuel. If uh, ma uh, many of the designs, uh, either with the Trizo fuel or with the molten reactors, have enough heat capacity that they simply can't do a phase change. No phase change, no meltdown, no issue. Um, the worst thing that you have is something that's really expensive because you just made a mess. Okay, um, we're starting to get questions coming. Thank you for um, sending in your questions. So, and thanks for that answer as well, Robert. Um, so, from Ford on YouTube, I hope I pronounced that correctly. 
why are um, Western PWRSs so expensive compared to Chinese and Russian ones? So I'm not sure if you can comment on cost. Um, yeah, I can. But are you, okay. Because um, that's probably, it's quite relevant in Australia, the argument of cost. So appreciate your response on that. So let me give you a hypothetical. Let's say that um, people decided that uh, the death rate from automobile accidents was unacceptable. And so uh, there was a call made and we asked a manufacturer to make a car that was so sturdy that it could roll off a cliff, fall onto a, a, some kind of a, um, a protrusion, go into a fire and then fall into a lake and have a passenger be inside of this and nothing bad happened. Right. So that would be in principle, we could design a car like that, that it could it could go through all these insults and that the drivers would be able to get up and walk away without a scratch. So although, yes, we could design a car like that, it would be freakishly expensive. Uh, the point being that you have to have the worst accident you could possibly have and nobody gets hurt. Right. You, we could design that. The point is, if we did, that would be crazy expensive. And that's kind of the same analogy we have for nuclear energy in the United States. If you have a full meltdown in the United States, the worst that could possibly happen is that nobody gets hurt. No scratches, no measurable medical effects of any kind. That's the criteria. That's the level of safety that we have built into the modern nuclear reactors that we are using in the United States today. And so that makes it expensive if we're going to continue to have to insist on that level of safety. And in the nuclear industry, it's a it's a matter of pride that we have a, a drastically higher safety record and drastically more rigorous safety requirements than any other industry that's out there. So, but in the same sense, it can come back and bite us because to to attain that level of safety and quality, it's just really expensive. And if you're going to say, well, I don't need it to be that safe. I just want it to be, you know, pretty safe. I just want it to be comparable to the chemical plant that I have then yeah, an enormous amount of cost can go away because now I can do it cheap. And uh, one of the things that we are uh, very strict on in the United States are non-proliferation controls. We like it to be passively safe and we like passive non-proliferation design in there so that somebody's gonna have to spend a lot of money and put in a lot of effort to proliferate using any of our reactor designs. That's not cheap. If, if you want quality, you're gonna pay for it. Well, thanks. Thanks for your answer um, there, because it's certainly quite a contentious issue. Um, now, with this next question from Lucas, it's quite long, um, so I'll just answer. I'll just read it out. Actually, let me. Proponents of renewable energy state that it is very cost competitive, so it'll be dominant power generation technology and drive the current energy transition. How can nuclear power plants be adopted in Australia? with its perception of being very expensive and slow to build. Um, also, what about the not in my backyard concerns of local communities? So I guess you could also, um, with your answer here, just talk about the take up of nuclear in the US as well um, and how that's turned out. Well, let's just um, uh, go to the extreme and assume that uh, solar and wind with all the research money that's been spent into them they're just going to become dirt cheap um uh to point where the cost is negligible just assume that for the sake of argument if that were the case uh then we would have to also fold into that battery technology 
so that if it's just going to be solar and wind, then we're going to need a massive battery technology, which simply doesn't exist. The, 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 the supply chain, the mining, the milling, the, uh, the amount of uh, metals that are going to be needed would just be fantastic. So what is done for those that uh, uh, reject nuclear is that you supply that instead with batteries by natural gas. Uh, and natural gas, because of fracking, is quite cheap, but it is a greenhouse gas emitter. Um, and it has a low capacity factor. Capacity factor means how long is it making electricity at the rated of value. And in both of those cases, that's where nuclear actually is quite favorable. It's got an enormous capacity factor. It's got the highest capacity factor. It's got a higher capacity factor than hydro, if you can believe that, or geothermal. You think, why can't those be running 24-7? Well, they have maintenance issues. Um, and nuclear having the highest capacity factor is very attractive from that, from that perspective. Nuclear also having um, uh, no greenhouse gas emissions means that it is entirely uh, uh, aligned with our climate goals. And so you're not going to generally be able to have renewables to more than around, than around ideally around 70%. It could be a lot lower depending on how, much, how, how reliable your wind and solar is, but you're gonna need something baseload, right? When the sun's not shining or when the wind's not blowing, you need something else. And so it's either, going to be natural gas or nuclear or some other kind of a baseload energy because we simply don't have battery capability to do strictly wind and solar across the board. So the benefit with nuclear is that it can be sustainable, it can be renewable, it can be um, uh, integrated into any kind of a grid and it's highly versatile. And perhaps the most attractive thing of all is that it can give you energy security. If you're producing your own uranium locally, then you don't need foreign nations. You don't have to worry about foreign wars or, or geopolitics uh, preventing you from having that energy without which we really just all die. Um, got another question here. I'll put this on the screen. Um, I wonder if you know, in comparison to other professions, how much radiation the highest risk and or average nuclear worker will be exposed to in their lifetime? including if they were managing nuclear waste. So what radiation are they getting exposed to working there? Well, um, let, me, let, me, let me answer that with a story, if I may. So there was uh, uh, a million person worker study that was done where they looked at all the nuclear workers across the United States and across the developed countries that had nuclear. And they wanted to know if there was a detrimental effect from low levels of radiation because as a general rule radiation workers i'm going to answer the question while i in the middle of the story here they we, we they would get around 100 to 200 millirem per year which is right around background it's it's less than total background but that's about what they would get per year but the idea was there's enough people we could actually study to see if this has any kind of an effect well when they looked at the health effects from all these people they found that their cancer rates were lower and so at first people thought, oh, this is hormesis. This is proof that uh, life is designed for higher radiation levels as we had in our ancient history due to exponential increase of natural radioactivity in the earth going back in time. And so they thought, well, this is proof of hormesis that a little bit of radiation is good for you. But then they came back and they realized, you know, the people we're comparing these two are the people that live in the, the or surrounding areas. And usually people that work in a nuclear power plant make a lot more money than people that work in agriculture or surrounding areas or whatever, or, or mining, whatever might be in the area. And what that means is that if I make a lot more money, I have better benefits. And if I have better benefits, 
then, you know, if I have, say, a funny mole on my elbow, uh, my, my annual checkup is going to get, get that caught. And my physician might say, well, let's just remove it just in case. But if I work on a farm, I might be less inclined to go in and have that elbow looked at and I'll allow it to keep getting worse and worse until it becomes cancerous. And so uh, it's called the healthy worker effect. By, by having a higher standard of living, uh, you are able to mitigate those kinds of things. And so basically this healthy worker effect was, uh, uh, went away because um, the effects from low levels of radiation are too small to, to, to see anything compared to all of the other uh, uh, causes that are out there. But the average dose to a nuclear worker is right around background, annual background. That's good to know. Um, so next question um, from Grant, and it's it's again about the grid and the capacity um, of renewables to support the grid, um, and just how how what's the best way to engage the working class on you know the fragility of our grid and the the need for nuclear as a reliable and dispatchable baseload source of power. <laughs> That's a good point. Um, actually, I forgot to mention the NIMBY part in the past question. If I can come back to the NIMBY. Uh, NIMBY is something that you're probably not gonna get rid of. I mean, if it, you, you can recognize the need for a sanitary landfill, right? The trash that you have from your kitchen, that goes somewhere, right? And that goes to a sanitary landfill. The trash you have in your office, that goes somewhere. Now that sanitary landfill is not something anybody wants in your backyard, but you can see it's essential. Uh, just because it's unsightly doesn't mean that we should ban sanitary fill, landfills. It means that we should uh, place them in a location that's not going to be an issue for the locals that is going to uh, meet the need and do it in a way that's not unsightly. The nice thing about nuclear is that as a general rule, it's, it's, it's not unsightly. <laughs> It, it is industrial. Uh, it's far more attractive to look at, in my opinion, than say a chemical plant or a distillation plant or uh, a fertilizer plant. Those, those are, in my opinion, far more uh, uh, of an eyesore. In terms of the grid, the nice thing about the nuclear, again, is it comes to its baseload uh, uh, ability to continually produce. And you can ramp it up and you can ramp it down. You can even do load following. It's just not as a cost effective if you're going to do load following. Um, but because it's dispatchable, you're able to basically put any kind of uh, energy supply anywhere that you need it um, because you can scale it like that. And so uh, without changing your infrastructure, you can, for example, when you take a coal plant offline, you can put a nuclear plant there. Um, although my understanding is that the naturally occurring radioactivity that's in coal is at levels that are drastically higher than the levels that we allow for nuclear, which is kind of odd, right? It's okay for, for coal to have that much radioactivity, but that's way above what we are tolerant with for nuclear. Um, you, but then again, you might say, well, with the coal, it's naturally occurring radioactivity and with nuclear, it's anthropogenic, um, but dose is dose, uh, radiation is radiation and alpha, uh, a five MeV alpha doesn't care where it came from. Uh, a one MeV photon doesn't care where it came from. That's the same dose potential in either of those. Um, so hopefully that answered that question. Um, I've also just had an anonymous question sent through to me about nuclear fusion. What are your thoughts on nuclear fusion? Well, that would be lovely if we could have that. 
um, the uh, the inside joke in the industry is that it's always been 50 years out. Um, that's changed. Uh, now it's 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 for about the past 10 years, it's been every 20 years out. And the latest discovery at the National Ignition Facility at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory really didn't change that. Um, basically, they the, what's the only difference that happened there was that we now have an experiment to prove that it's no longer just theoretically possible on Earth, but it, 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 it is physically possible that that could occur sometime in the future, that it's an engineering problem now. That amount of engineering is fantastic. Um, that that uh, facility there at Livermore was designed for experimentation on uh, fusion bombs. Uh, so they were basically validating their models for fusion bombs and also saying, well, maybe we can use this to make electricity by just doing fusion energy. Um, and so converting that technology into an electricity production mechanism is a whole different issue. Whereas with the Tokamax, like we have with the ITER in France, that was initially designed to be a heat producer for uh, boiling water to make steam and turn a turbine and make electricity. At the National Ignition Facility, that's not the case. It's, it's going to whole new design that's going to have to occur uh, to make that work long term. Thanks for that. Um, got another question from Simon. Um, how do we get more young people interested in studying nuclear engineering um, to keep the momentum in the nuclear sector going? We're going to need a lot of smart and capable people. And I guess this is assisted by our recent announcement in Australia with the Orca submarines. Um, and the skills and training that will go into that. But what are your thoughts on that? Obviously, you do a lot of work on your social media page, getting people interested in nuclear, but what's the best way to get young people interested in jobs in nuclear energy? Um, well, uh, there, there, there are a number of uh, drivers there. One is that if you are really serious about climate change, the 2018 uh, uh, report from the International Panel on Climate Change said we needed a double worldwide nuclear. I mean, that's huge, right? Just think about all the new 20% of energy from the United States, nuclear. Uh, and then there's a number of contributions uh, from other countries. The United States has the, the, the biggest share, but the point is, is if we got to double it, that's huge, right? To meet our climate goals. Um, if you are interested in uh, uh, the the highest tech that you can get in terms of the, the most science, because um, that's pretty much what it takes. The, the commenter, I think, recognized that because we don't just juggle around valence electrons like in chemical engineering. We have to juggle around valence nucleons to get that reactor to go critical. And so it's a lot more physics. You've got to, it's not just chemical and material, um, but it's also nuclear physics. And so, uh, yeah, you do need a lot of uh, people that really have to love science to, to learn all of that so that we can safely handle it in a way that's cost effective. So that, uh, in addition to the, the environmental benefits, um, just crazy fun science, and it pays really well. So uh, yeah. I think that's, that's what we have to offer. Got another question regarding thorium. Um, and molten salt reactors, I assume, using thorium. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, thorium would be lovely. That would be fantastic. The problem with thorium is we don't have the fuel cycle infrastructure. And be like saying, why don't we recycle? Well, yeah, that'd be fantastic. Um, the, but uh, fuel recycling uh, has, has been politically stymied, like, like waste management. Um, and so the, the, the political instability and the political opposition 
has made it so that the technology hasn't been developed and so it's no longer cost effective to to recycle spent nuclear fuel with thorium uh you would need the thorium mines the the the, the milling the fuel manufacturer, you would need to build thorium reactors, and then you would need to build uh, uh, reprocessing capability inside the thorium reactor. That's how it works. You actually got to reprocess the thorium fuel while you're burning it in order to get that to, to continue running it in a molten salt type design. And so none of that exists. And if none of that exists, it would all have to be built and it would all have to be designed and tested. And so that's probably another 20 or 30 years out, assuming that we started today uh, because the old designs that we validated back when we were doing the, the technology wouldn't meet our safety criteria today uh, with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. And we actually don't even have the, all of the infrastructure to do the licensing for that. And so it would take a huge infrastructure bill. It would take another effort that, because all of those facilities would have to be built. And since none of them exist, they would have to be, you'd have to basically start from scratch. So it's kind of like recycling. It would be lovely. It'd be fantastic. We could do it, but we would just have to make the commitment to actually follow through and do it. One caveat there, a lot of people on my TikTok channel like to say that, uh, that thorium is the non-proliferation darling, that uh, doing a uranium cycle, uh, it supports nuclear proliferation. And there are two issues with using a nuclear reactor with uranium fuel cycle for proliferation. One, if somebody was doing the enrichment, you can enrich uranium high enough to make it weapons grade. Or if you're doing uh, uranium fuel cycle, if you recycle, then that gives you the ability to get out the plutonium for a nuclear weapon. So if you're not recycling, then it's just the uranium enrichment phase because you can keep enriching until it's not just low enriched uranium, but it becomes high enriched uranium to the point where it can become a weapon. When you're doing thorium technology, you've got to literally remove activated thorium. So the thorium absorbs a neutron, thorium-232 absorbs a neutron decays through protactinium-233 to become uranium-233. So really all you're doing is just removing uranium from the fuel. The key is, is that if you're doing that, you're removing pure fissile uranium. So you're getting uranium that's at higher quality than what you can get from enrichment with uranium hexafluoride. And so in a sense, it's far easier to do proliferation, nuclear proliferation on the thorium fuel cycle. A lot of people are convinced that it's more uh, 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 robust against proliferation, but in a sense, it's, it's actually worse because you get pure fissile material. If I'm doing plutonium, I'm getting reactor grade plutonium. And even if I don't get reactor grade plutonium, I can get weapons grade plutonium that's still not pure fissile material. If I'm doing uranium enrichment, I, I'm never gonna get pure fissile material. Uh, it's just gonna get arbitrarily close and I'll get it up to the point where it's weapons grade. But with thorium, it literally is pure fissile material, which is more, far more extreme than any of the others. Um, but it's, we, we know how to build in non-proliferation controls. It's just that it's not really a non-proliferation darling. It just would require maybe a, a, a lot more infrastructure than we have in order to support that fuel cycle. But it would be great. There's a lot more fuel, thorium in the, in the ground than there is uranium. Uh, uranium, it's about three parts per million. Uh, it's about the same. We have about the same amount of uranium in the ground as we have tin. It's about as abundant in the Earth's crust as tin. But thorium is three times the abundance. So there's just a lot of thorium. Uh, and uh, if we went to a thorium fuel cycle, that would provide far more national uh, energy security because so many more people have it uh, than just uranium. Sorry, I was just checking, are you okay to answer a few more questions, Robert? And thank you for um, doing this as well. I can just see there's a few more people watching now. Is that 
Is that all good with you? Yeah. Yeah, okay, thank you. Um, next question um, from YouTube. Will SMRs make large reactors obsolete? That's quite interesting. Um, what are your thoughts on that question? Uh, it's possible. If we do build the tokamak reactors like ITER and went with fusion technology, the only real hope with those are that they're going to be uh, something on the gigawatt scale. In other words, they're going to only be useful for a very large city near a coast where you have a huge thermal heatsink. So like New York or LA, where I have a huge fusion reactor that is boiling water and the residual heat in order to get the, the, the steam to convert back to water to go back and get boiled again, I got to take the heat out of that and dump it to the environment. And so uh, those large tokamak reactors are going to be potentially multiple gigawatt scale. And so they're only going to work for large cities. You're not going to be able to get small cities to, to use them. There's just too much energy. The thing with the small modular reactors is that you can scale them. If I wanted to, if I took a 300 megawatt small modular reactor, I could, if I for, did, for example, new scale, I could put three or four more in there and make it, you know, 1.2 gigawatts use, using small modular reactor technology. So in a sense, you could replace both of those needs with small modular reactor technology. But in the end, uh, at least for the current designs, you'll still get a more cost efficient design if you use a larger reactor to meet that need rather than multiple small modular reactors. So generally what happens in the energy market is that cost drives it all. Uh, it, because of the, the, the rate payers is, uh, by far and large, are gonna say, I want the cheapest electricity you can give me. And you know, unless they're uh, uh, environmentally conscious, they're not going to say, I'm willing to pay more for cheaper electricity. Most people uh, are, you know, living hand to mouth, they're just getting by day to day, and they're not going to be concerned with whether my electricity has a higher uh, carbon footprint than the next. Thank you, answer to that question. We've got another question, um, which is quite specific. Your thoughts on TerraPower and General Electric Joint Partnership? Um, do you think the relationship? is a long-term viable option. So that's quite specific, but if you had any thoughts on that. I'm um, just hopeful. Um, I, 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 yeah. I'm not inside that enough to know, um, yeah. but I am hopeful. Okay. Um, well, just a reminder to everyone to keep on sending your questions through. And thank you everyone for watching. Um, thank you, Robert, again, for joining us, especially at this early hour there in the US. Um, I've got, Another question, and I know you've answered this on your TikTok page, but is nuclear and, and when you look at that more specifically, is uranium renewable? <clears throat> is ge well, let me ask you, throw this at you. Is geothermal energy renewable? I guess not. So I would say it is. Geothermal is mm -hmm. renewable um, in the sense that uh, the heat is going to keep being generated over and over again. I remove the heat mm -hmm. from the earth, the heat's just going to be regenerated. Um, and so from that sense, I would say it's renewable. Yeah. Um, but that source of that heat is the radioactive decay of the primordials like uranium and thorium. And so the energy source is the same that you have for nuclear. Now there's still some residual heat in the earth's core from formation, but the majority of the heat is just uranium and thorium and a little bit of potassium. And so in that sense, if it's something that will just, the earth will naturally keep reproducing, uh, then 
the, the conventional definition is that would be renewable. Now, the latest research has shown that we can actually passively remove uranium from the ocean uh, at, a, at a price point that's comparable to digging a hole. Now, why that's significant is that every year, this is year by year by year, every year, the amount of uranium that's naturally dumped into the ocean is about four times the world's electrical energy needs. Every year, dumped into the ocean, plating out on the bottom of the ocean. And so that could be passively removed and it's gonna be continually replaced by plate tectonics. The mountains are gonna to continue to grow. The water's gonna trickle down. It's gonna remove uranium from the granite and just dump that uranium in the ocean. And rather than just letting it continue to plate out on the bottom of the ocean, we could passively remove it. Um, and that's just using uh, uh, that source that's being dumped into the ocean. That if, if we continue to use what's um, uh, available in our minds, then we have far more. Even better, if we started doing reprocessing, then we would need a lot less electricity. If we started to, more specifically, if we used mixed oxide fuel, we could, and, and we did reprocessing, we could fold in all the depleted uranium from the past nuclear energy supplies. All that depleted uranium uh, is just a vast amount, and that would drastically increase the amount that we already have, so we don't even need to dig another hole. Um, and furthermore, this the, the energy source, the lifetime of this energy source, the sun, it should go red giant in about 5 billion years. And then we become a red cinder, and then the sun gets becomes red giant, and then another couple billion years, it becomes a blue dwarf, and it kind of fizzles away. Thorium, remember that's three times the amount of uh, uh, material than we have of uranium. Thorium has a half-life of about 14 billion years, about the age of the universe. So long after the sun is gone, the nuclear material is still going to be, st will still be here and available. So in a sense, it's far more renewable than nuclear or than than solar. In that sense, it's going to be around a lot longer. And uh, if, as long as we use good technology like recycling and reprocessing, um, then it, it, in a sense, it it would be unlimited in terms of its time period in, in which it would be available because it's so vast, it's just so vast. It just requires that we have to be good stewards. Okay, um, thank you for that. Um, another question, what is your opinion as an expert on lead-cooled reactors? I like them. Um, the, the, again, we had mentioned at the beginning the passive safety capability that the new reactors are coming up with, meaning that if the coolant goes away, the heat capacity is sufficient that you're not gonna get a phase change. They're, they're walk away safe. Uh, you could have a zombie apocalypse and they're not going to have uh, any kind of a phase change which would cause an environmental release. Um, it does require that, uh, that we uh, have to license uh, or have the process to license the new technology. And even with that, you still have the issue of the required that you gonna require investors. It's probably one of the biggest problems that we have right now is that if I'm gonna build a new manufacturing plant in the United States of any kind uh, or an energy facility, I'm gonna need investors. I'm gonna need somebody that's gonna build that. And, and historically, it's been easy to find people that would invest in solar and wind um, or other manufacturing, but because of the political instability, not knowing if, uh, if the politicians are gonna change the law and make it more expensive than what you originally bargained for when you invested in it, nuclear is considered to have a higher financial risk because of that, because of the potential for a new political um, uh, uh, party 
coming into power that would then oppose it and make it no longer cost effective. Um, we've got a next question from Randall. Um, how feasible is replacing coal-fired power stations with nuclear ones so that the same turbines and grid infrastructure could be used to save time and money? So how easy is it to replace? Obviously, we use a lot of coal in Australia currently. How easy would it be to retrofit it, I guess, for nuclear? So it, 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 that isn't an easy thing to do if you... Uh, are able to deal with the fact that the, the the radioactivity levels in around coal are quite high because of the natural radioactivity that's in coal, right? When you burn coal, all of the, the thorium and the potassium and the uranium that was in the coal, it either goes into the ash or it goes up the stack. And so when the radon goes up the stack, all the radon progeny goes up there and those decay products are going to plate out. But more importantly, the buildup that you have around those coal plants um, has the potential to make the uh, the levels of environmental radioactivity uh, substantially above what we allow in the United States. And so uh, unless you can get an exemption to replace a coal plant with a nuclear plant and have those levels of radioactivity be elevated than what we normally allow for nuclear due to the fact that it was caused by the coal, then you'd be able to do it. Um, I don't think you'd want to keep the turbine um, due to the, uh, the potential for synergistic or um, uh, uh, I forgot what the word is, the, the, the ability for common cause failures. The, the point is, is that I, I don't think that the turbines meet the nuclear quality grade that we have in the United States. You want that turbine to be far more reliable. Um, uh, I could be wrong about that, um, but the grid, the rest of the grid is fine. Uh, once, once I've made my transformers and I can hook that up to the grid, then yes, then uh, replacing coal with nuclear becomes very attractive. Again, the, the biggest stumbling block as far as I'm aware is simply that the, uh, the radioactivity levels around a coal plant uh, uh, far exceed those that we are, uh, uh, that what we allow in the United States for a nuclear power plant. Um, we've got a, another question and in regards to your point on politics, how do you see the handling of legislation um, in terms of, you know, just making sure there's bipartisanship? Um, obviously, you don't have that same perspective, you know, in Australian politics, but what have you found in the US in regards to bipartisan support for nuclear energy there? Well, uh, a few years back, the Democratic Party did take uh, anti-nuclear out of their platform. So now their party platform says that they, are, they do support advanced nuclear. And so when it comes to politics, there, there, there's really no guarantee at all uh, of anything. Um, uh, you could say, well, I think that it's, it's safe to say that the politics will support wind and solar for the next 20 years, and you might be right. But again, there's no guarantee that they'll continue to support that. Um, you could say, well, I don't know what would make a change, and I don't know what would make a change, but something could, uh, because you're talking about people's opinions. And so when it comes to politics, the people's opinions generally drive who is elected into office, right? Who, who are people going to have in it? Who does the public opinion survey or uh, support 
Um, and so that's that's a hard one to predict how the politics will evolve. Um, historically, uh, Western democracies have been characterized as having the highest degree of political stability. Um, and all that that's defined as being is the ability to predict how things are going to go. Because if you can predict how they're going to go, then you can keep yourself safe, right? You can figure out how to invest and how to divest if you can predict how policies are going to evolve. Um, we've got a next question. Um, sorry, that, that one's being um, answered in regards to nuclear fusion, Owen. Um, I, okay, so um, please send through, send, send through your questions if you have any still. Um, I just have a question um, again for you um Robert and it is um so obviously we've had our AUKUS announcement recently and people have been bringing up including myself you know the I guess irony that we're investing in nuclear reactors in submarines compared to those that are actually on land so what is actually the difference between is there a difference between those um in terms of you know the fuel they're using or what's your thoughts in regards to that? So my understanding is that the the, the benefit with uh, uh, micro reactors on a submarine is that you can basically stay covert until your food runs out. You can do your entire because you've got as much electricity and as power as you need because you've got a nuclear reactor on board. You can do everything you want and you can be as deep as you want anywhere that you want for as long as you want until you run out of food. And so as you put a lot of food on a nuclear reactor, those things can go out for very, very long periods of time and meet and, and, and serve their mission. So they can sit there and passively record pretty much anywhere on the planet that you would like them to be in the water and gain intelligence uh, until they need to surface and transmit that intelligence accordingly or receive additional orders to do something else. With a diesel engine, you've got to periodically be exhausting, right? You've got to uh, charge up your batteries. Um, and then once your batteries are charged up, then you power on those batteries or you power on your diesel in, uh, diesel engine. Um, and so the, the lifetime of those, as I understand it, is substantially different. Uh, with a nuclear reactor, that thing will give you energy for well over a decade, um, uh, depending on how much initial enrichment you have and its size. Uh, all of that's classified, so I don't actually know, but um, that's the real benefit. It's the mission objective to be covert wherever, whenever you want, so that you can monitor your borders, you can monitor your uh, shipping lanes, you can monitor anything that could be of threat to your national security for your supply chain infrastructure or logistics. But is there any difference between the reactors in both, like compared to the ones used in commercial designs for like just general domestic electricity generation and then the ones actually in the submarines? You're talking about it. We're comparing different types of diesel engines or diesel to nuclear. Um, the nuclear reactors in our new submarines, and then the nuclear reactors on land. Oh, uh, yeah. So, well, they're both pressurized water reactors, but we also have boiling water reactor designs. 
Um, the pressurized water reactor simply means that the primary coolant that's going through the reactor remains at high pressure. It never changes phase. So it, it, it's got to transfer its energy to a secondary loop, which actually does boil. And so all of that has been effectively miniaturized. That's kind of what these new fission batteries or microreactors are based on is, hey, if we can make the tiny little reactor on a submarine, maybe we can make one on land um, and, uh, and have a far more versatile nuclear reactor capability. Um, uh, the ones on land are generated to make, are, are designed to make a far more electricity, far more power, um, where the fission batteries or microreactors are designed to make far less power, say something in the tens of megawatt levels instead of um, hundreds or thousands of megawatts as we have on land. So the ones on a nuclear, uh, nuclear sub are much smaller and can't generate anywhere near as much energy as the ones that are on land. Thanks for answering um, that question of mine. Um, we've got another question from YouTube. What do you think about nuclear waste repository in a tropical country? Um, and I guess this relates to Australia with our um, climate. Is there any requirements to have geological repository in those situations? So I, I, I think it's a good idea. Um, the National Academies of Sciences have agreed. The point is that when you have a, a waste form, you need to safely dispose of that waste form. Now, the stuff from your kitchen and your office, that goes to a sanitary landfill. If you were to start disposing of, say, things with hazardous material like lead acid batteries or um, other hazardous waste, you don't want to send that to a sanitary landfill. You want higher levels of protection for hazardous waste disposal facilities. And those protections are going to be specific to that waste form. Um, what we like to do in nuclear um, is basically design our entire system so that the worst thing that could happen is that nobody gets hurt. And one way to do that is with nuclear is that you have special controls for, for the waste. Just like you have special controls for any other unique waste form, uh, when you have something that is per peculiar uh, or particular that has a particular hazard that's not associated with any of the others, then you're going to mitigate that hazard. And the easy way, the most cost-effective way to do that with nuclear is just dig a hole that's deep. Um, uh, and then you, because you basically, the, the, the real goal there is to take advantage of the free and cheap shielding that comes with dirt. Rather than building a concrete structure, which I guess we could do, that'd be a lot more expensive because you still need to shield it. And so the cheap way to shield it is either with dirt or with water. In a nuclear reactor, most of the shielding with the spent fuel is done with water until it cools off, and then we'll shield it with concrete and steel. But the idea is long-term is we shield it with dirt. Just dig a hole that's deep enough um, that you can put it back there in the ground until it just decays back into a, a different kind of dirt. Um, one of the fun things about that, that concept is that uh, we know from Oklo Gabon, it was uh, a, a uranium mine in uh, there in Africa, where if you go back a, a few billion years, uranium enrichment increases exponentially. Right now, it decays exponentially. You go backwards in time, it increases exponentially. And the fissile component, uranium-235, has a shorter half-life. So if you go back far enough in time, uh, the natural enrichment of the uranium would have been about 5%, comparable to what we have in modern nuclear reactors. And so at that level of enrichment, you can actually go critical naturally. And that's what happened. And we can see all of the fission products, all the terminal fission products still there in the ground. We can see how they diffuse over time. 
what levels of uh, natural mitigation had occurred, and what kind of additional geology would we prefer to have to mitigate it even further, to get it even better. And so Oklahoma is like, it's like this perfect case. It's like, well, what happens if you, you could say nobody's going to be here in a billion years? Well, nobody was here a billion years ago or two billion years ago, but we can see what occurred over time as a result of Mother Nature putting spent fuel in the ground and how she was able to control it and how we could find better geology than that or even use the same geology. But uh, that could be problematic if we did that because the, the current level of uh, protection that's required uh, for a geological repository or almost any nuclear facility for that matter is about 10 percent It's actually less than 10 percent of natural background per year is allowed from a nuclear facility That's the level of safety that we require uh, It's about 10 millirem per year is uh, what's allowed from a nuclear facility to the nearest resident um, But natural background is around 330 320 millirem per year and so that's the level of protection that's required and because we can do it, we do, but it does make it very expensive. Um, I've got another question from Clinton, and it's regards to if Australia was to legalize nuclear energy and to set up a domestic capability here, um, would it? Where would we turn to for um, enrichment? Would it be smarter to you know re what what country would we go to if we wanted to outsource it or? Would it make sense to do that domestically here in Australia? So I would argue that it, for if you were, especially if you're to to use nuclear for energy, you would want to do it domestically. Um, otherwise, you're going to need. I would recommend that they diversify. So uh, the point is, is the United States is highly reliable, but there's no guarantee that international. Uh, um, arrangements are going to be permanent forever. Um, probably for 50 years is reliable, maybe for a couple hundred years is reliable. But uh, it, the, the politics in Australia could sour, the politics in the United States could sour. There's no guarantee on those things. Now, it's highly reliable uh, right now to use the United States for those kinds of things. And, and so that would be fine initially. But I would recommend that you, you one, diversify so that even if you go if you go nuclear, that you're going to want multiple forms of nuclear, so that you're not just relying on one technology, because any kind of a hiccup in that one technology can have a long, uh, you know, a, a chain reaction down the pike. So diversify, and even and I would argue that actually includes not just going 100% nuclear. You could go 100% nuclear, but you're going to need a sufficient diversity there that any kind of uh, a supply chain issue or uh, a logistics issue, a manufacturing issue, isn't going to trickle across the entire industry. So you want to diversify so you're not so that any one hiccup isn't going to cause a, a big issue. Uh, so ideally, you would be you would do you would provide your energy locally, um, but it, if you're going to have to outsource it internationally, then you're going to want places where you have some kind of political stability um, and good relations. And so the United States is is an ideal choice for that. But again, you know, 50 years is probably a reasonable prediction for how lo how long we can both assume that our nations are going to have political stability. 200 years, I'd say maybe that. I mean, that sounds reasonable, but uh, neither of us are going to be around to know. Um, thank you for that answer. There's a few more questions, but I'd just like to thank everyone so far for sending in your questions. Um, sorry, you can't actually see them there, but thank you very much for your questions. And also thanks, um, Dr. Hayes, for your um, answers so far. Um, 
got question. What are your what's your opinion as an expert about pebble bed reactors? So those were one of the designs that uh, that, that 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 these these new reactor concepts that allow for passive safety. Uh, the fuel there is called Trizo. Um, the, the those pebble bed reactors have sufficient heat capacity that if the coolant turned off, you just turn off the reactor and it's not going to melt down. No phase change because the heat capacity is so large, it'll just absorb all that heat. And with no phase change, you don't have an issue. You just have the expense of whatever caused the loss of coolant accident or the um, uh, that process to stop. And usually that's going to be really expensive with nuclear. Any kind of a hiccup is really expensive. The quality levels are the highest that you can imagine. And so that usually is just something that's going to be expensive. Uh, but again, passive safety, so no meltdown, no phase change. That's what these, uh, a lot of these new um, uh, Gen 4 reactors uh, offer is passive safety. Um, next question. Sorry, um, I'll just show you that one. Would successful nuclear fusion bring an end to the large use of nuclear fission for energy? Um, not likely. Uh, the issue with, uh, uh, and it's possible, the issue with uh, nuclear fusion is that it's going to require, as a general rule, gigawatt scale production, which means you're going to need a large heat sink. Um, and so unless you can find an, a cost effective way to dump that heat into the environment, uh, you're going to be stuck on coastal areas near large cities. Um, and so new developments could eventually do that. But as it is, even with the tokamak, reactor like ITER, uh, that probably is not even going to go critical for maybe another 10 years. And even if it did, coming up with a design that would produce electricity would at least take another 10 years. This is being optimistic. And that's just for a first of its kind. Um, once we built one that actually worked, say that was another, that would be about 20 years from now, then it might be another 10 years before we started making ones that were economical around the world. Um, and so the optimistic perspective is 20 years from now, but it could still be substantially longer. Thank you for um, answer to that. I think we're going to get wrapped up soon, um, but please, if you have any final questions, do send them through. And thank you very much, everyone, for watching. Um, we've got, so yeah, until um, 8.30 Australian Eastern Standard Time, if you're in Brisbane or where that applies. If you're in Sydney, of course, it's around 9.30. So if you have questions, send them through now, please. Um, and we'll try and get to them. Um, we've got a question um, here. Um, in increasingly geopolitically unpredictable times, what contingency planning can be implemented to mitigate risks in situations like those um, unfolding in Ukraine? And of course, with the reactors there. So the, the issue there really is the, the same issue you have with a dirty bomb. Dirty bombs technically would be more accurately, rather than be calling them a weapon of mass destruction, they're really a, a weapon of mass disruption. The, the death from a dirty bomb largely is, is strictly due to that of the chemical explosive. In, in order to get uh, an increased uh, cancer probability, you actually have to get a really large dose. The, 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 the effect from radiation cancer induction is actually quite small. 
Uh, you've, it, it just takes a really large dose to have something that's measurable. And so when it comes to modern reactors, like at Zaporista in Ukraine, they have a containment that's designed to withstand a jet impact. But that doesn't mean that it, you can't use it to scare people. And that's really the power is to scare people. If you can terrify people, you can stop an economy. And that's a very effective way to hurt people and to hurt a nation and to influence politicians is to terrify the public. And that's mostly what you have there when it comes to bombing nuclear power plants is the ability to terrify the public. Uh, because again, once that occurs, you're pretty much stopping everything. Even though the risk might be very low for actual physical harm, that doesn't mean that people aren't going to uh, react in a way that any radioactivity in the environment is deadly and deathly, and therefore we need to panic. And that causes all, uh, all kinds of untold harm. I think you're muted there, Will. I am. Thanks. Thanks for picking that up. Um, the cost of a large scale traditional reactor in terms of licensing. Um, so what's, do, are you aware of the cost of, you know, licensing this? Obviously that's quite a prolonged process in comparison to construction costs. Like what is, like, how does that factor into the actual cost of those nuclear reactors? Um, so if you recall, I, I pointed out that in order to build any kind of a facility, you need investors in the United States, right? It's not, the government doesn't cough up the money and say, okay, we're going to do this, uh, because we're a capitalistic society, it requires investors. And so in order to start, you're going to need to have the money, uh, basically to finish. That's really what you want. If you don't have enough money to finish when you start, uh, it, you're, you're, you're going to find that investors don't like that. It, that's a high risk scenario. And so if you have enough money to start, that implies a certain schedule. And that schedule requires that you're able to make milestones in a timely fashion. And many of those milestones are getting permission to do construction. Uh, now the latest construction and operating license uh, infrastructure for the Nuclear Regulatory Commission uh, had a certain paradigm where the expectation was something like the Westinghouse AP1000. If we're doing these new reactor designs, then there's that uncertainty that there might be additional safety criteria. Again, remember the, the technical basis for a nuclear reactor is that the worst thing that could possibly happen is that no one gets hurt. And when you're using that level of uh, criteria to license a facility, any kind of a new uh, 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 nuance in a possibility that something could occur, if you've triggered that, that level of safety, then you're going to have to go back and, and do and uh, reanalyze re that. And if it requires a design change, like let's say, oh, we need two knobs here instead of one knob, that design change is going to put you back in schedule. And so when you've originally started with the expectation that we're on, say, a five-year timeline, and that's going to require $5 billion, that $5 billion is being held up until that five-year mark is hit when we start making electricity. If we get put back one year, that $5 billion was not making money for a year. And that becomes a huge penalty in terms of its cost effectiveness for investment. And that becomes a big risk for people that are going to say, well, how do we know that you're going to be able to maintain schedule? And so that's where the licensing versus construction costs become an issue is you're holding up that money and paying interest on the loans for that or whatever the penalty was for holding up that money for that period of time. Um, now, I'm not sure if you'll be able to answer this question, but um, it's from Clinton. 
roughly how many employees does a 1,400 megawatt nuclear power station have versus future small modular reactors around 300 megawatts? What's your understanding of like the jobs required for both? Oh, uh, I am guessing that it's comparable. You will need more for the larger reactor, but it's not going to scale by power. Yeah. So if you needed 300 employees for the one gigawatt reactor, um, you might need less for the 300. I mean, you, you don't need as many people. The, the perimeter is a lot smaller, so uh, you don't need the same number of security guards, but it's not going to scale by power. Uh, you might be able to reduce that by 10% or so in terms of the, the, but again, that's not something that I, I'm just guessing at that. That's all good. Um, I've now got a question for you, and it's um, actually, I should remember. Oh, in terms of you were talking about this earlier, if you could just elaborate, like, what are the benefits of nuclear energy in terms of the environment? Well, uh, sustainability, the potential to be renewable, the ability to have no greenhouse gas emissions basically the same as what you get with uh, solar photovoltaics or wind, offshore wind. So uh, extremely environmentally friendly. Uh, in terms of the number of deaths per gigawatt hour from accidents, it's extremely low, drastically lower than hydro. Uh, it has an extremely small environmental footprint. In order to get a gigawatt hour, you, you have to do extremely low numbers, uh, amounts of mining and milling. With solar and wind, you have to have you have to mine and mill and manufacture an enormous amount of materials to have a gigawatt hour. With nuclear, it's drastically smaller. The waste that you create, so with solar and wind, all those solar panels and so forth either have to be recycled or thrown away. And most of it's just thrown away when it doesn't work. So they have an enormous amount of mass of waste per gigawatt hour. With nuclear, it's lower. So it's almost across the board. Anything that you would say is safe, environmentally friendly, and sustainable. Nuclear, as a general rule, is as good or better than pretty much everything else on every account, except for public acceptance, which is odd. Um, have nuclear power plants in the USA had lifetime ex extensions beyond their original design life? Yeah, absolutely. So if, you're, uh, if you were licensed for 40 years, you can get 20-year extensions. Uh, there are multiple plants which are looking at potentially having a 100-year lifetime. Uh, and so uh, in that sense, more than doubling the lifetime. So your investment has substantially improved. But that's, again, largely mitigated or, or uh, enabled by the incredibly high quality and safety standards that are required. So the maintenance in order to keep one of these plants running uh, is, is terrific which uh, enables you to do that if you're able to keep your, your, the quality of your equipment uh, and your infrastructure at, uh, at, the, at, at nuclear grade, then it becomes possible to make that argument that we're just as safe as we were before, uh, if not better. Um, just a follow-up question on that, and I know we're getting to our final questions here, but what is the lifetime typically of a nuclear power plant when not extended compared to, say, renewables? So I'm not, I, I don't think I can compare that with renewables um, it, because it's going to vary. If you're talking traditional renewables like solar and wind, that's going to be very different than hydro. Um, but my understanding is that the, 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 the default uh, time would be about 40 years for a nuclear power plant. 
with hydro, it can be uh, substantially longer for the initial design expectation. Yeah. Um, interesting question from LinkedIn. Basically, do you think that um, governments should take on nuclear power plant funding and investment, or should it be the responsibility of private enterprise and the private sector? So, I've had a number of people on my TikTok channel that say, well, I would like nuclear if it was not for profit, if it became run by the government. And uh, like I had mentioned, I worked as a contractor for the government for a long time uh, in nuclear waste management and radiological emergency response. And if you're going to have the government do something, then uh, there are models where that can work. Um, but as a general rule, uh, when I look at industry and I look at places where the government has run something versus when uh, industry does that, um, as long as the, there's financial incentive placed on safety, then industry is going to do better. Uh, and that's generally what we have when it comes to nuclear installations, even within the federal government. But you have to put a financial incentive on that. It's kind of like when you when you subsidize something uh, like like wind and solar, it makes it more attractive, and you can do that. If you had a similar safety tax, where you said uh, anybody that has any kind of a regulatory violation, then there's going to be a penalty. And right now, that's the way it is in the United States. Uh, the, if you were to intentionally violate a procedure, and do that knowingly and consistently, the fine is ten thousand dollars a day. So people don't intentionally violate procedures or anybody that, that has the potential to do that, you get rid of them, right? Or you go and uh, you have them go work in training or not training, but uh, in some place that's not going to be substantial, right? Let, let, let them go off and, uh, and, and, and work in a cafeteria or something because the penalty for intentionally violating uh, any kind of a safety requirement is huge. And so as long as you do that, um, I would say that the private industry is the best way to go if you uh, put a financial incentive on safety. But even there, uh, even, even without doing that, I, I have to ask the question, why, is that, why would that only apply to nuclear? Why wouldn't that apply to everything? If the government could do nuclear better, why can't they do everything better? Why is nuclear special and that we could only be safe with nuclear if the government did it as opposed to making cars or um, uh, making food, making clothing, making the housing, right? Is the government really better at those things? And would they do better? You know, if so, then yeah, if they really could be across the board or why would they particularly better, uh, be better with nuclear as opposed to anything else? I don't see a, a convincing argument there. Um, and when you look at the safety record and the quality record for the nuclear in industry in the United States, uh, that's pretty hard to beat. That's <laughs> pretty hard to beat. The worst thing we've ever done is Three Mile Island, which only raised environmental background levels by about 1% for the local res residents. The worst that's ever happened after almost 50 years of making 20% of our electricity, that's the worst that's happened in the United States. That's hard to fathom, but it's true. Um, I think this will be the last question. It'll come from myself. Um, could you give a short pitch for Australia on why nuclear energy should be legalized here? Um, I think the most compelling argument is energy security, um, right? Uh, if you don't have energy, you all die, right? How many of you could go th get thrown off in the bush and survive? Uh, uh, yeah, there'd be a handful of you. That's all that would be left if you didn't have energy. And if you don't have energy security, then that's the worst that could happen. Uh, 
that's what we like to look at in, United, in, in, in nuclear in, in energy industry is what's the worst that could happen. And as long as we can tolerate that, then everything else is much better. And we then go do continual improvement and improve on everything else. And so if your supply chain, if your energy, uh, uh, anything that you rely on for your energy security is not done locally, then that's a risk. And if it is done locally, then now you just got local risks, right? Now you can have strikes, you can have sabotage, you can have other things, but those are local things that you have far more control over. So even without having everything being um, uh, environmentally friendly, again, without energy, you all, for the most part, you, you just all die. And so you need to have that energy security and nuclear would do that, especially if you were mining and milling and manufacturing your own fuel and your own power plants there and you had your own repository, that would give you fantastic energy security, which means that you continue to enjoy an economy and healthcare and transportation and communication and everything that energy br brings us. Well, thank you so much for joining us this evening, Robert. Um, it's, it's very generous of you to wake up so early to answer everybody's questions. Um, and you've done that so thoughtfully and um, so well. And it's really important that we have experts like you contributing to the nuclear debate here in Australia. So thank you very much. I'll say goodbye to you now um, whilst I just deliver some final messages, um, but I'll have a chat to you after this. Um, okay. Thank you for that. Um, so thank you everyone for joining us this evening to watch our live stream. I'll hopefully have a um, replay of it put up across our social media channels. But thank you very much for watching. Um, a few reminders to make sure if you haven't already to sign our petition for the ban on nuclear energy to be reversed here in Australia. You can do that by signing um, by scanning the QR code on the top left hand side of the screen or searching up change.org slash nuclear for Australia. And another reminder to please follow um, Dr. Hayes on his TikTok, um, where he basically answers questions like these on a regular basis um, to his audience. So please do engage with that. Um, also, we'd be very interested in hearing your um, suggestions and your feedback from today, if you thought it was a good format, if you enjoyed it, if you want us to do more, um, you can email us or message us in regards to that. Um, and also if you're an expert watching or you're interested in um, coming on like Dr. Hayes has um, tonight, please get in touch with us. You can email us at info at nuclearforaustralia.org. But anyway, I'm going to conclude this now, but thank you very much for watching. <laughs>